Chapter One of the Empire of Russia From the Remotest Periods to the Present Time. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Empire of Russia From the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John S. C. Abbott. Chapter One parentage and birth of russia from 600 bc to a.d. 910 primeval russia explorations of the greeks scythian invasion character of the scythians sarmatia assaults upon the roman empire eruption of the alanes conquests of trajan the gothic invasion the huns their character and aspect the devastations of attila the avars results of comminglings of these tribes normans birth of the russian empire the three sovereigns rurik sinius and truver adventures of Askelad and deer introduction of christianity usurpation of oleg his conquests expedition against constantinople those vast realms of northern europe now called russia have been inhabited for a period beyond the records of history by wandering tribes of savages. These barbaric hordes have left no monuments of their existence. The annals of Greece and of Rome simply inform us that they were there. Generations came and departed, passing through life's tragic drama, and no one has told their story. About five hundred years before the birth of our Savior, the Greeks, sailing up the Bosphorus and braving the storms of the Black Sea, began to plant their colonies along its shores. Instructed by these colonists, Herodotus, who wrote about 440 years before Christ, gives some information respecting the then condition of interior Russia. The first great eruption into the wastes of Russia, of which history gives us any record, was about 100 years before our Saviour. An immense multitude of conglomerated tribes, taking the general name of Scythians, with their wives and their children, their flocks and their herds, and their warriors fiercer than wolves, crossed the Volga and took possession of the whole country between the Don and the Danube. These barbarians did not molest the Greek colonies, but on the contrary, were glad to learn of them many of the rudiments of civilization. Some of these tribes retained their ancestral habits of wandering herdsmen, and, with their flocks, traversed the vast and treeless plains, where they found ample pasture. Others, selecting sunny and fertile valleys, scattered their seed and cultivated the soil. Thus the Scythians were divided into two quite distinct classes, the herdsmen and the laborers. The tribes who then peopled the vast wilds of northern Europe and Asia, though almost innumerable and of different languages and customs, were all called by the Greeks Scythians, as we have given the general name of Indians to all the tribes who formerly ranged the forests of North America. The Scythians were as ferocious a race as earth has ever known. They drank the blood of their enemies, tanned their skins for garments, used their skulls for drinking cups, and worshipped a sword as the image or emblem of their favorite deity, the god of war. Philip of Macedon was the first who put any check upon their proud spirit. He conquered them in a decisive battle, and thus taught them that they were not invincible. Alexander the Great assailed them, and spread the terror of his arms throughout all the region between the Danube and the Deniper. Subsequently, the Roman legions advanced to the Euxine, and planted their eagles upon the heights of the Caucasus. 
the roman historians seem to have dropped the scythian name and they called the whole northern expanse of europe and asia sarmatia and the barbarous inhabitants sarmatians about the time of our saviour some of these fierce tribes from the banks of the thys and the danube commenced their assaults upon the frontiers of the roman empire this was the signal for that war of centuries which terminated in the overthrow of the throne of the caesars the roman senate enervated by luxury condescended to purchase peace of these barbarians and nations of savages whose names are now forgotten exacted tribute under the guise of payment for alliance from the proud empire but neither bribes nor alliances nor the sword in the hands of the enervated rome could effectually check the incursions of these bands who were ever emerging like wolves from the mysterious depths of the north in the haze of those distant times and remote realms we catch dim glimpses of locust legions emerging from the plains and the ravines between the black sea and the caspian and sweeping like a storm-cloud over nearly all of what is now called russia these people to whom the name of alains was given had no fixed habitations they conveyed their women and children in rude carts their devastations were alike extended over europe and asia and in the ferocity of their assaults they were as insensible to death as wild beasts could be in the second century the emperor trajan conquered and took possession of the province of dasha which included all of lower hungary transylvania moldavia wallachia and bessarabia the country was divided into roman provinces over each of which a prefect was established in the third century the goths from the shores of the baltic came rushing over the wide arena with the howling of wolves and their gnashing of teeth they trampled down all opposition with their war knives drove out the romans crossed the black sea in their rude vessels and spread conflagration and death throughout the most flourishing cities and villages of bithynia galatia and cappadocia the famous temple of diana at ephesus these barbarians committed to the flames they overran all greece and took athens by storm as they were about to destroy the precious libraries of athens one of their chieftains said let us leave to the greeks their books that they in reading them may forget the arts of war and that we thus may more easily be able to hold them in subjugation these goths established an empire extending from the black sea to the baltic and which embraced nearly all of what is now european russia towards the close of the fourth century another of these appalling waves of barbaric inundation rolled over northern europe the huns emerging from the northern frontiers of china traversed the immense intervening deserts and swept over european russia spreading everywhere flames and desolation the historians of that day seemed to find no language sufficiently forcible to describe the hideousness and the ferocity of these savages they pressed down on the roman empire as merciless as wolves and the caesars turned pale at the recital of their deeds of blood it is indeed a revolting picture which contemporaneous history gives us of these barbarians in their faces was the concentrated ugliness of the hyena and the baboon they tattooed their cheeks to prevent the growth of their beards they were short thick-set and with backbones curved almost into a semicircle herbs roots and raw meat they devoured tearing their food with their teeth or hewing it with their swords to warm and soften their meat they placed it under their saddles when riding nearly all their lives they passed on horseback wandering incessantly over the vast plains they had no fixed habitations but warmly clad in the untanned skins of beasts like the beasts they slept wherever the night found them 
they had no religion nor laws no conception of ideas of honour their language was a wretched jargon and in their nature there seemed to be no moral sense to which compassion or mercy could plead such were the huns as described by the ancient historians the goths struggled against them in vain they were crushed and subjugated the king of the goths hermanric in chagrin and despair committed suicide that he might escape slavery thousands of the goths in their terror crowded down into the roman province of thrace now the turkish province of romania the empire then in its decadence could not drive them back and they obtained a permanent foothold there the huns thus attained the supremacy throughout all of northern europe there were then very many tribes of diverse names peopling these vast realms and incessant wars were waged between them the domination which the huns attained was precarious and not distinctly defined the terrible attila ere long appears as the king of these huns about the middle of the fifth century this wonderful barbarian extended his sway from the volga to the rhine and from the bosphorus to the shores of the baltic wherever he appeared blood flowed in torrents he swept the valley of the danube with flame and sword destroying cities fortresses and villages and converting the whole region into a desert at the head of an army of seven hundred thousand men he plunged all europe into dismay both the eastern and western empires were compelled to pay him tribute he even invaded gaul and upon the plains of chalons was defeated in one of the most bloody battles ever fought in europe contemporary historians record that one hundred and six thousand dead were left upon the field with the death of attila the supremacy of the huns vanished the eruption of the huns was a devastating scourge which terrified the world whole nations were exterminated in their march until at last the horrible apparition disappeared almost as suddenly as it arose with the disappearance of the huns central russia presents to us the aspect of a vast waste thinly peopled with the wrecks of nations and tribes debased and feeble living upon the cattle they herded and occasionally cultivating the soil and now there comes forward upon this theatre of violence and of blood another people called the sclavonians more energetic and more intelligent than any who had preceded them the origin of the sclavonians is quite lost in the haze of distance and in the savage wilds where they first appeared the few traditions which have been gleaned respecting them are of very little authority from about the close of the fifth century the inhabitants of the whole region now embraced by european russia were called sclavonians and yet it appears that these sclavonians consisted of many nations rude and warlike with various distinctive names they soon began to crowd upon the roman empire and become more formidable than the goths or the huns had been wading through blood they seized province after province of the empire destroying and massacring often in mere wantonness the emperor justinian was frequently compelled to purchase peace with them and to bribe them to alliance and now came another wave of invasion bloody and overwhelming the avars from the north of china swept over asia seized all the provinces on the black sea overran greece and took possession of most of the country between the volga and the elbe the sclavonians of the danube however successfully resisted them and maintained their independence generations came and went as these hordes wild degraded and wretched swept these northern wilds in debasement and cruelty rivaling the wolves which howled in their forests they have left no traces behind them 
and the few records of their joyless lives which history has preserved are merely the gleanings of uncertain tradition the thinking mind pauses in sadness to contemplate the spectacle of these weary ages when his brother man was the most ferocious of beasts and when all the discipline of life tended only to sink him into deeper abysses of brutality and misery there is here a problem in the divine government which no human wisdom can solve there is consolation only in the announcement that what we know not now we shall know hereafter all these diverse nations blending have formed the present russians along the shores of the baltic these people assumed the name of scandinavians and subsequently normans toward the close of the eighth century the normans filled europe with the renown of their exploits and their banners bade defiance even to the armies of charlemagne early in the ninth century they ravaged france italy scotland england and passed over to ireland where they built cities which remain to the present day there is no manner of doubt writes m Karamsin in his history of russia that five hundred years before christopher columbus they had discovered north america and instituted commerce with the natives it is not until the middle of the ninth century that we obtain any really reliable information respecting the inhabitants of central russia they are described as a light-complexioned flaxen-haired race robust and capable of great endurance their huts were cheerless affording but little shelter and they lived upon the coarsest food often devouring their meat raw the greeks expressed astonishment at their agility in climbing precipitous cliffs and admired the hardihood with which they plunged through bogs and swam the most rapid and swollen streams he who had the most athletic vigor was the greatest man and all the ambition and energy of the nation were expended in the acquisition of strength and agility they are ever described as strangers to fear rushing unthinkingly upon certain death they were always ready to accept combat with the roman legions entire strangers to military strategy they made no attacks in drilled lines or columns but the whole tumultuous mass in wild disorder rushed upon the foe with the most desperate daring having no guide but their own ferocity and the chieftains who led small bands their weapons consisted of swords javelins and poisoned arrows and each man carried a heavy shield as they crossed the danube in their bloody forays incited by love of plunder the inhabitants of the roman villages fled before them when pursued by an invincible force they would relinquish life rather than their booty even when the plunder was of a kind totally valueless in their savage homes the ancient annals depict in appalling colors the cruelties they exercised upon their captives they were however as patient in endurance as they were merciless in infliction no keenness of torture could force from them a cry of pain yet these people so ferocious are described as remarkably amiable among themselves seldom quarrelling honest and truthful and practising hospitality with truly patriarchal grace whenever they left home the door was unfastened and food was left for any chance wayfarer a guest was treated as a heavenly messenger and was guided on his way with the kindest expressions for his welfare the females as in all barbaric countries were exposed to every indignity all the hard labour of life was thrown upon them when the husband died the widow was compelled to cast herself upon the funeral pyre which consumed his remains it is said that this barbarous custom which christianity abolished was introduced to prevent the wife from secretly killing her husband the wife was also regarded as the slave of the husband and they imagined that if she died at the same time with her husband she would serve him in another world the wives often followed their husbands to the wars 
from infancy the boys were trained to fight and were taught that nothing was more disgraceful than to forgive an injury a mother was permitted if she wished to destroy her female children but the boys were all preserved to add to the military strength of the nation it was lawful also for the children to put their parents to death when they had become infirm and useless behold exclaims a russian historian how a people naturally kind when deprived of the light of revelation can remorselessly outrage nature and surpass in cruelty the most ferocious animals in different sections of this vast region there were different degrees of debasement influenced by causes no longer known a tribe called the Dedlians, nestor states lived in the most gloomy forests with the beasts and like the beasts they ate any food which a pig would devour and had as little idea of marriage as have sheep or goats among the sclavonians generally there appears to have been no aristocracy each family was an independent republic different tribes occasionally met to consult upon questions of common interest when the men of age and who had acquired reputation for wisdom guided in council gradually during the process of their wars an aristocracy arose warriors of renown became chiefs and created for themselves posts of authority and honor by prowess and plunder they acquired wealth in their incursions into the empire they saw the architecture of greece and rome and thus incited they began to rear castles and fortresses he who was recognized as the leading warrior in time of battle retained his authority in the days of peace which were very few the castle became necessary for the defense of the tribe or clan and the chieftain became the feudal noble invested with unlimited power at one time every man who was rich enough to own a horse was deemed a noble the first power recognized was only military authority but the progress of civilization developed the absolute necessity of other powers to protect the weak to repress crime and to guide in the essential steps of nations emerging from darkness into light with all nations advancing from barbarism the process has ever been slow by which the civil authority has been separated from the military it is impossible to adduce from the chaos of those times any established principles often the duke or leader was chosen with imposing ceremonies some men of commanding abilities would gather into their hands the reins of almost unlimited power and would transmit that power to their sons others were chiefs but in name we have but dim glimpses of the early religion of this people in the sixth century they are represented as regarding with awe the deity whom they designated as the creator of thunder the spectacle of the majestic storms which swept their plains and the lightning bolts hurled from an invisible hand deeply impressed these untutored people they endeavored to appease the anger of the supreme being by the sacrifice of bulls and other animals they also peopled the groves the fountains the rivers with deities statues were rudely chiselled into which they supposed the spirits of their gods entered and which they worshipped they deemed the supreme being himself too elevated for direct human adoration and only ventured to approach him through gods of a secondary order they believed in a fallen spirit a god of evil who was the author of all the calamities which afflict the human race the polished greeks chiselled their idols from snow-white marble into the most exquisite proportions of the human form many they invested with all the charms of loveliness and endowed them with the most amiable attributes the voluptuous venus and the laurel-crowned bacchus were their gods but the sclavonians regarding their deities only as possessors of power and objects of terror carved their idols gigantic in stature and hideous in aspect from these rude scattered and discordant populations the empire of russia quite suddenly sprang into being
its birth was one of the most extraordinary events history has transmitted to us we have seen that the normans dwelling along the southern and eastern shores of the baltic and visiting the most distant coasts with their commercial and predatory fleets had attained a degree of power intelligence and culture which gave them a decided preeminence over the tribes who were scattered over the wilds of central russia a sclavonian whose name tradition says was gostomisl a man far superior to his countrymen in intelligence and sagacity deploring the anarchy which reigned everywhere around him and admiring the superior civilization of the normans persuaded several tribes unitedly to send an embassy to the normans to solicit of them a king the embassy was accompanied by a strong force of these fierce warriors who knew well how to fight but who had become conscious that they did not know how to govern themselves their message was laconic but explicit our country they said is grand and fertile but under the reign of disorder come and govern us and reign over us three brothers named rurik sinius and truver illustrious both by birth and achievements consented to assume the sovereignty each over a third part of the united applicants each engaging to cooperate with and uphold the others escorted by the armed retinue which had come to retrieve them they left their native shores and entered the wilds of scandinavia rurik established himself at novgorod on lake ilmen sinius advancing some three hundred miles further northeast took his station at bailo ozero on the shores of lake bailo truver went some hundred miles further south to truver in the vicinity of smolensk thus there were three sovereigns established in russia united by the ties of interest and consanguinity it was then that this region acquired the name of russia from the norman tribe who furnished these three sovereigns the russia which thus emerged into being was indeed an infant compared with the gigantic empire in this day of its growing and vigorous manhood it embraced then but a few thousand square miles being all included in the present provinces of st petersburg novgorod and peskov but two years passed away ere sinius and truver died and rurik united their territories with his own and thus established the russian monarchy the realms of rurik grew rapidly by annexation and soon extended east some two hundred miles beyond where moscow now stands to the headwaters of the volga they were bounded on the southwest by the duina on the north they reached to the wild wastes of arctic snows over these distant provinces rurik established governors selected from his own nation the normans these provincial governors became feudal lords and thus with the monarchy the feudal system was implanted feudality was the natural first step of a people emerging from barbarism the sovereign rewarded his favorites or compensated his servants civil and military by ceding to them provinces of greater or less extent with unlimited authority over the people subject to their control these lords acknowledged fealty to the sovereign paid a stipulated amount of tribute and in case of war were bound to enter the field with a given number of men in defense of the crown it was a system essential perhaps to those barbarous times when there was no easy communication between distant regions no codes of laws and no authority before which savage men would bow but that of the sword at this time two young norman nobles inspired with that love of war and spirit of adventure which characterized their countrymen left the court of rurik at novgorod where they had been making a visit and with well-armed retainers commenced a journey to constantinople to offer their services to the emperor 
it was twelve hundred miles directly south from Novgorod to the imperial city. The adventurers had advanced about half-way when they arrived at a little village called Kiev, upon the banks of the Dnieper. The location of the city was so beautiful, upon a commanding bluff at the head of the navigation of this majestic stream, and the region around seemed so attractive, that the Norman adventurers, Ascalod and Deer by name, decided to remain there. They were soon joined by others of their warlike countrymen. The natives appeared to have made no opposition to their rule, and thus Kiev became the centre of a new and independent Russian kingdom. These energetic men rapidly extended their territories, raised a large army which was thoroughly drilled in all the science of Norman warfare, and then audaciously declared war against Greece and attempted its subjugation. The Danaper, navigable for boats most of the distance from Kiev to the Euxine, favoured their enterprise. They launched upon the stream two hundred barges, which they filled with their choicest troops. Rapidly they floated down the stream, spread their sails upon the bosom of the Euxine, entered the Bosphorus, and anchoring their fleet at the mouth of the Golden Horn, laid siege to the city. The Emperor Michael III then reigned at Constantinople. This Northman invasion was entirely unexpected, and the Emperor was absent, engaged in war with the Arabs. A courier was immediately dispatched to inform him of the peril of the city. He hastily returned to his capital, which he finally reached after eluding with much difficulty the vigilance of the besiegers. Just as the inhabitants of the city were yielding to despair, there arose a tempest which swept the Bosphorus with resistless fury. The crowded barges were dashed against each other, shattered, wrecked, and sunk. The Christians of Constantinople justly attributed their salvation to the interposition of God. Ascalod and Deir, with the wrecks of their army, returned in chagrin to Kiev. The historians of that period relate that the idolatrous Russians were so terrified by this display of the divine displeasure that they immediately sent ambassadors to Constantinople, professing their readiness to embrace Christianity, and asking that they might receive the rite of baptism. In attestation of the fact that Christianity at this period entered Russia, we are referred to a well-authenticated letter of the patriarch Photius, written at the close of the year 866. The Russians, he says, so celebrated for their cruelty, conquerors of their neighbors, and who in their pride dared to attack the Roman Empire, have already renounced their superstitions, and have embraced the religion of Jesus Christ. Lately our most formidable enemies, they have now become our most faithful friends. We have recently sent them a bishop and a priest, and they testify the greatest zeal for Christianity. It was in this way, it seems, that the religion of our Saviour first entered barbaric Russia. The gospel, thus welcomed, soon became firmly established at Kiev, and rapidly extended its conquests in all directions. The two Russian kingdoms, that of Rurik in the north and that of Askelod and Deir on the Danaper, rapidly extended as these enterprising kings by arms subjugated adjacent nations to their sway. Rurik remained upon the throne fifteen years, and then died, surrendering his crown to his son Igor, still a child. A relative, Oleg, was entrusted with the regency, during the minority of the boy king. Such was the state of Russia in the year 879. In that dark and cruel age, war was apparently the only thought, military conquest the only glory. The regent, Oleg, taking with him the young prince Igor, immediately set out with a large army on a career of conquest, marching directly south some hundred miles and taking possession of all the country by the way, he arrived at last at the headwaters of the Danaper. 
the renown of the kingdom of ascalod and deer had reached his ears and aware of their military skill and that the ranks of their army were filled with norman warriors oleg decided to seize the two sovereigns by stratagem as he cautiously approached kiev he left his army in a secluded encampment and with a few chosen troops floated down the stream in barges disguised as merchant boats landing in the night beneath the high and precipitous banks near the town he placed a number of his soldiers in ambuscade and then calling upon the princes of kiev informed them that he had been sent by the king of novgorod with a commercial adventure down the Danaper, and invited them to visit his barges the two sovereigns suspecting no guile hastened to the banks of the river suddenly the men in ambush rose and piercing them with arrows and javelins they both fell dead at the feet of oleg the two victims of this perfidy were immediately buried upon the spot where they fell in commemoration of this atrocity the church of st nicholas has been erected near the place and even to the present day the inhabitants of kiev conduct the traveller to the tomb of ascalod and deer oleg now marshalling his army marched triumphantly into the town and without experiencing any formidable opposition annexed the conquered realm to the northern kingdom oleg was charmed with his conquest the beautiful sight of the town the broad expanse of the river the facilities which the stream presented for maritime and military adventures so delighted him that he exclaimed let kiev be the mother of all the russian cities oleg established his army in cannonments strengthened it with fresh recruits commenced predatory excursions on every side and soon brought the whole region for many leagues around under his subjugation all the subjected nations were compelled to pay him tribute though with the sagacity which marked his whole course he made the tax so light as not to be burdensome the territories of oleg were now vast widely scattered and with but the frailest bond of union between them between the two capitals of novgorod and kiev which were separated by a distance of seven or eight hundred miles there were many powerful tribes still claiming independence oleg directed his energies against them and his march of conquest was resistless in the course of two years he established his undisputed sway over the whole region and thus opened unobstructed communication between his northern and southern provinces he established a chain of military posts along the line and placed his renowned warriors in feudal authority over numerous provinces each lord in his castle was supreme in authority over the vassals subject to his sway life and death were in his hands the fealty he owed his sovereign was paid in a small tribute and in military service with an appointed number of soldiers whom he led into the field and supported having thus secured safety in the north oleg turned his attention to the south with a well-disciplined army he marched down the left bank of the river sweeping the country for a hundred miles in width everywhere planting his banners and establishing his simple and effective government of baronial lords it was easy to weaken any formidable or suspected tribe by the slaughter of the warriors there were two safeguards against insurrection the burdens imposed upon the vassals were so light as to induce no murmurings and all the feudal lords were united to sustain each other the first movement towards rebellion was drowned in blood igor the legitimate sovereign had now attained his majority but accustomed as he had long been to entire obedience he did not dare to claim the crown from a regent flushed with the brilliancy of his achievements who had all power in his hands and who by a nod could remove him for ever out of his way igor was one day engaged in the chase when at the door of a cottage in a small village near kiev he saw a young peasant girl of marvellous grace and beauty she was a norman girl of humble parentage young igor inflamed by her beauty immediately rode to the door and addressed her her voice was melody 
her smile ravishing, and in her replies to his questionings she developed pride of character, quickness of intelligence, and invincible modesty, which charmed him and instantly won his most passionate adoration. The young prince rode home sorely wounded. Cupid had shot one of his most fiery arrows into the very centre of his heart. Though many high-born ladies had been urged upon Igor, he renounced them all, and allowing beauty to triumph over birth, honourably demanded and received the hand of the lowly-born yet princely-minded and lovely Olga. They were married at Kiev in the year 903. The revolution at Kiev had not interrupted the friendly relations existing between Kiev and Constantinople. The Christians of the imperial city made great efforts by sending missionaries to Kiev to multiply the number of Christians there. Oleg, though a pagan, granted free toleration to Christianity, and reciprocated the presents and friendly messages he received from the emperor. But at length Oleg, having consolidated his realms and ambitious of still greater renown, wealth, and power, resolved boldly to declare war against the empire itself, and to march upon Constantinople. The warriors from a hundred tribes, each under their feudal lord, were ranged about his banners. For miles along the banks of the Danaper at Kiev the river was covered with barges, two thousand in number. An immense body of cavalry accompanied the expedition, following along the shore. The navigation of the river, which poured its flood through a channel nearly a thousand miles in length from Kiev to the Uxine, was difficult and perilous. It required the blind, unthinking courage of semi-barbarians to undertake such an enterprise. There were many cataracts, down which the flotilla would be swept over foaming billows and amidst jagged rocks. In many places the stream was quite impassable by boats, and it was necessary to take all the barges, with their contents, on shore, and drag them for miles through the forest, again to launch them upon smoother water. And all this time they were exposed to attacks from numerous and ferocious foes. Having arrived at the mouth of the Daniper, they had still six or eight hundred miles of navigation over the waves of that storm-swept sea. And then, at the close, they had to encounter in deadly fight all the power of the Roman Empire. But unintimidated by these perils, Oleg, leaving Igor with his bride at Kiev, launched his boats upon the current, and commenced his desperate enterprise. End of chapter 1